So, uh, we are here today, aren't we, Egon? With uh, a new episode? We are here, in the digital flesh. Yes. Doing Hegel again. Doing him dirty. Doing him dirty. Yes, we are here, uh, still focusing on Hegel and uh, primarily phenomenology of spirit. Uh, but we're looking at Hegel through the eyes of some modern thinkers today. Uh, yep. specifically Ray Brassier and Zizek, uh, both of whom are uh, also looking through Robert Brand the work of Robert Brandom. Yeah. So Brandom's kind of an interesting figure, right? Like if anyone is not expected to read Hegel in the philosophy world, it is Anglophone philosophers of mind or Anglophone logicians, right? Like it, if we think of the canons of philosophy that a lot of people are familiar with, they're re it's really split in two in the mm -hmm. West. You know, you have continental philosophy and then you have Anglophone philosophy, which essentially treats idealism as something that does not exist, right? And, and fundamentally doesn't make sense too, yeah. right? Like yeah. its embrace of contradictions is problematic for the Anglophone. Yeah, well, there, there, there is this basic problem of the law of identity right right and they do not in the law of non-contradiction so these are things that are brought into question by hegel and which we've gone over in the last couple episodes but it's like so intense that they don't it, the only reason they comment on it is that uh it like is forced into their view like derrida gets a honorary degree at harvard and suddenly, you know, W.V. O'Quine comes out the woodwork to say, you know, like this should never happen. <laughs> <laughs> so you Frenchy bastards. Yeah. So the fact that Brandom is taking Hegel seriously is kind of novel, you know, and, and this isn't to say that there aren't other figures like this. Robert Pippin comes to mind. But yeah, that's what I was thinking of, too. Yeah. But but Brandom is doing something very specific. He is doing what he calls a renormalization of Hegel, which is kind of weird sounding, like why does something need to be renormalized? But it, you know, it has interesting ideas, right? And, and primarily he is removing, and we were talking about this earlier, but removing the life from Hegel in mm -hmm. a sense, mm -hmm. so that it fits into a contemporary logical doctrine because he sees it as revealing things about how normative systems work or how, um, you know, ideology or how identity actually functions. And so it's both good and bad. And both Zizek and Brassier are confronting this. Well, and I think it's, it's actually really helpful in some ways, right? Because you have Brandom who's like trying to treat Hegel like one might treat Kant, which is this like, Treating it through logic, you know, and obviously Hegel uh, is, is very interested in rationalism and, and uh, you know, it kind of holds it up to the highest degree of consciousness. So it makes sense uh, to, to look at his work this way. But I think really what it does is it provides a wonderful foil to see how Hegel uh, in some ways gave birth to mo the modern, right? Um, yes. Hegel in many ways kind of stands at this precipice where, you know, he's, he's an enlightenment thinker through and through, you know, there's no denying that, but 
his program really kind of presupposes all of modernity and you know in a very real way through him we get thinkers like freud and nietzsche and lacan and 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 it's really important to both see how a like you know a, a very dead reading of hegel functions uh, versus one that's more rooted in the kind of contemporary moment and particularly how Hegel is seen through the parallax of Marx, right? You know, yes, absolutely. Um, because with Brandom, you know, you're not getting that. You know, no. he is trying his best to reconcile the paradox that's fundamental to Hegel, um, not in a way that disproves Hegel or that, um, you know, he's not trying to kill Hegel or or deliven it, um, but he's trying to like reconcile what he sees as problems in Hegel's thought. And, you know, I think for any thinker, it's good to be aware of and acknowledge and critique moments of paradox and moments of contradiction and, and you know, analyze what this means from all points of view. Yeah. And, but, but, but what it makes it very unique for any philosopher or thinker or theorist as we'll come to discuss these terms later, confronting Hegel, is that with contradictions so tightly held to the basic doctrine of Hegel's philosophy, the idea of critiquing the, the paradoxes within Hegel brings on this other layer of philosophical fascination. Yeah. And that's precisely where like Hegel or Zizek's thinking on Hegel and his critique of Brandom's reading of Hegel, where the energy comes from is that in those paradoxes are actually the core of what Hegel's thought is, you know, what makes him different from an, any other logician or from his precursor Kant. Um, Brandom really has like two major claims within this essay, um, mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. his book. Um, and one of them concerns identity, right? Of yes. How Hegel's concept of identity is described. And then the second, notion that Brandom is uh, trying to contend with is this idea of normative structures, right? And how do groups of people relate and create normative systems of belief and law, et cetera, right? And this becomes a concern both for Brassier and Zizek in different regards. Um, and it's interesting how they take them in two directions. Um, but uh, for Brandom, he is, specifically removing like this strange sort of um, ephemeral element of the of human thought that Hegel is identifying in what he calls alienation. And so uh, the, it, you kind of, you can see these specific areas um, in identity, in reducing identity to the series of thoughts, right? That do not extend outside of the human mind. And then in the case of normativity to a structure of understanding norms and activity that never leaves the predetermined structure of human thinking that bothers Zizek, right? Right. Um, well, it's almost a very like structuralist approach that he takes in some ways, you know, because, you know, it, it Brandom seems very concerned in being able to identify through Hegel 
this kind of systems creation slash um, almost historical narrative creation and how that has a pragmatic, a practical application. Yes. And um, so in uh, uh, Zizek's essay, so we're looking at these two essays, uh, Dialectic Suspicion uh, and Trust by Ray Brassier and In Defense of Hegel's Madness by Zizek. And Zizek, I mean, in his essay, you can almost picture him spitting all over the place, getting yes. so worked up, you know, because of course in Zizek's, uh, you know, uh, makeup of Hegel and identity, you know, the, the paradox is, is centered, yes. you know, that is, that is where the movement comes from. And, and in many ways, what he's looking at is Brandom's attempts to, like you said, normalize or reconcile Hegel into a logical system. And I think it's a great essay because it is very dialectical, right? Because Zizek does have to sort of concede a lot to Brandom, even as he's arguing with him. Exactly, exactly. So Brandom has this first argument, which is about identity, right? And mm -hmm. he's, he's talking about like the transformation of a thing, right? A person imagines they see a stick sitting in the water and the water makes it appear as if the stick is bent, right? And for Brandom, this is the movement of a thing coming in contradiction with itself and then being resolved as the thing itself, right? Right. So we see the straight stick, right? But the stick appears bent. We pull the stick out of the water and now our idea is transformed. And Zizek asks, what is actually transformed in this process, right? That's not exactly what Hegel was getting at. Um, instead, he says that Hegel is saying that when it's not simply about the stick, which is the thing itself, right? Right. That we can come to some moderate agreement about its, its reality, but it's also the thing for itself, how the thing has changed for itself. And so for a thing that can change for itself, such as a human being, right? Um, the process of realizing that shift, not simply the stick bending, but us believing one person is one way and realizing that they are another actually changes the thing itself. Right? Yes. It yes. actually changes the composition of the thing that is externalized in our consciousness, right? And that is this mutual object of, of total consciousness on the one hand and absolute substance on the other hand, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, for me, I think Brandom is being like a little too plastic, right? Because he's making this, he's trying to make this point that, you know, uh, or here's even a quote that Zizek quotes of Brandom and he says, the way things are in themselves, reality persists unchanged and unmoved by the flux of its appearances, right? So there is a stick. Uh, when you dip it in water, it looks like to us, the, the viewer, that the stick is bent because of the optics of water. Um, but then when we pull it out of the water, we can see that it is um, just a straight stick. And so, you know, he's making this point that, you know, subjectively, uh, you know, we change the understanding of of phenomenon of appearances, right? To use the Kantian word, uh, 
uh, in our brain. We understand it differently given the new information we get. Um, but I think you're absolutely right, right? It's like what Hegel is referring to is something a lot less plastic than just the appearance of a stick. Yes. You know, he's or concrete, you know, it's yeah, like, that's a much better word. Yeah. He's, in, in some ways we could say the opposite that he is implying a plasticity, right? Even mm -hmm. if we were talking about the mind itself, right? The mind as like this kind of ephemeral conceptual thing, like if we were referred to it materially, right? The thought in transforming this object, right? It creates activity in the brain. It, it creates a plasticity. It affects the plasticity of the brain. The brain is then is different, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that is kind of a material example of the transformation that Zizek is describing. Now, what's interesting about it is that he then refers this to de Saussure's famous um, analysis of, of mana, right? And how it leads back like to an empty signifier, right? But I think it's, isn't it Levi Strauss with mana? Oh, no, it's Claude Levi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Claude Levi Strauss, right. You're right. Or Levy, um, I don't know what the. I, 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 think, I think it's Claude Levi Strauss. Yeah. Yeah, uh, whatever the case may be, Claude Levi Strauss. Um, he, a, fo a follower of Saussure, right? Saussure is considered the father of French semiotics, right? Yes, and yes. By and large, the father of semiotics. You can talk about Charles Peirce, but um, for Strauss, Strauss is identifying this transformation of use of the word mana, right? And trying to draw it back to its origin. But what he finds inevitably is that structurally the word mana and the way that it is able to be applied to so many different sources, so many different signifieds, right? Is that the signifier is ultimately empty. It is right. something that conforms to the signified and therefore has an infinite variability. And that in a sense, all signifiers have this function, right? Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's truly an extension of the Hegelian uh, negativity too. I mean, Saussure, you know, he's, he's always famous for saying that, that there is no positivity in the signifier, that, yes. that what it is, is, is only a series of what it is not. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, in his versions of, version of semiotics, what a signifier is, is less, you know, almost representing a thing but representing it, it is not all of these other things. Yes. And, you know, in, in a way, I find that really helpful with Hegel because it, Hegel's negativity is sort of doing the same thing that, you know, it's sort of agreeing with Kant in some ways that it's like, well, I can't actually say what something is with any certainty, right? And so really what we are saying is that it is not all of these other things. And we can sort of make a concept surrounding that, right? And, um, you know, and I think this is where Zizek comes in when we're referring, when we're using the stick example that Brandom gives us, you know, for Zizek, well, that's part of a dialectical process. And he's more interested in that contradiction that the stick can be both straight and bent to our perception and that dialectically, the real is somewhere in that contradiction that that yes. reality can somehow express to us both without changing anything yes or while being absolutely transformed right and 
what's what's very what's very fascinating about the aspect of the signifier of the differentiality of the signifier is it can be it can be represented in two ways on the one hand the way you did it is not everything else but also that it is not itself right that it in time every iteration of the signifier right each copy of the signifier cannot be the same because it is always becoming that is right. another aspect of this dialectic which random is sort of reducing right and so there's that on the one hand and then there's this second element of random where he's trying to work out through dialectics how systems of people can create norms that are not alienated, right? And in this case, we can probably refer to alienation in the Marxian sense, right? Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. alienation, and, and we shouldn't limit it to the Marxian sense. We can also think about it in a psychological sense as well. But, you know, in the Marxian sense, the worker is alienated from their, uh, from their labor, right? By a system which abstracts its value, right? And, uh, you know, psychological alienation works quite similarly, right? The person treats the thing as real. That is not. So they right. treat the law as certain, right? We, a person believes that, to use a contemporary example, that Roe v. Wade will last in perpetuity, right? And just has that general sense. But these laws are actually composed of things that transform and move, right? And that alienation prevents normative systems from creating what I assume is a better condition for Brandom, right? And Zizek kind of replies, no, what Hegel is saying is that the alienation is internal to the system itself, right? That it is part of the structure of the system. And the way that we get past alienation or to move forward with alienation in mind is to understand its intrinsicness to the structure of thinking. Right. And in a weird way, accepting it, you know, yes. I mean, and, and it, and of course gets to that like annoying side of Zizek where it's like, you know, actually the most radical thing to do is the like nothing liberal stance, uh, yes. <laughs> this sort of like embrace of the contradiction and that, and, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, I don't think Zizek is really wrong about, which is this, you know, the the only way forward, quote unquote, is through it, that, you know, the more you try and pick out a side of, of this paradox, the more you're actually stuck in it. And, um, you know, and so Zizek, when he sees this stuff, he's like, no, this is this is paramount to, uh, you know, this is everything against what he understands about Hegel, which is, you know, that as far as what alienation is, it's it's a actually uh, not a symptom of the paradox, but it is part of why it seems why the society seems paradoxical, and that somehow by you know it's like almost in the Eastern sense, it's like you need to accept alienation to become unalienated. Yes, you know yes, exactly. Like uh, if you understand that there is always this division, this empty space between your imagination of what is re reality and what is actually real, right? This gap that Lacan would describe, that space of alienation as well. 
then you can understand thought in general, right? Mm -hmm. You can have a better mm -hmm. understanding of the way that we should approach things because you always understand that there is going to be a failure, that there is going to be a negativity. There's going to be a way in which thought does not equal reality, right? And that's kind of, again, this empty, this, this figure of the empty signifier returning. Yeah. But at the same time, there is what you say in it. There is that kind of, um, this aspect of Zizek in his pessimism that he, he fully acknowledges because this is in his most recent book on Hegel, um, Less Than Zero, much of this is written in a far, in a far fuller way because it's a 900 page book or whatever. But at the end of it, his conclusion is that you know, inevitably, what do we need? We need it's a, a big group. book. Yes, it's a, it's a great book. As <laughs> it's well. awesome. I just started it. But yeah, I, I, I finished it, um, you know, a couple months ago. And, you know, not to spoil it for you. But <laughs> oh, um, spoiler alert, people. <laughs> the conclusion is pretty, pretty sad. It's ultimately that we need to get some people together to think because there really is nothing else, you know, like that, that's ultimately what he's waiting for. Mm -hmm. The group of, of leftist bourgeois elites who truly understand their Hegel and their Lenin and their Trotsky and their Lacan and their Freud, and they'll all come together and make this special world where the answer being that nothing's really there is good enough. And Misha, Misha, this reminds me of a, an old neighbor of mine who was convinced that the, the answer is that we needed enough people to transcendentally meditate on the same day. <laughs> and then the aliens will show themselves, but only after this threshold point yeah. is reached. And, you know, they'll share all their wonderful technology and et cetera. Um, but yeah, that's very sad. <laughs> And, and this for me ultimately is the great question around negativity critique and what we should be getting into, which is mm -hmm. the beginning of Brassier, him bringing up Jameson's distinction between philosophy and theory, if you want to talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, and okay, so uh, sort of in switching gears, in Ray Brassier's essay, um, and actually, in both essays, there's a lot of speak about the, the hermeneutics of suspicion, um, basically this idea that after Hegel, particularly in Marx and Freud and Lacan, that, that and I would argue Benjamin, and there's a whole litany of people who... Sort and, of, and Nietzsche as well. Nietzsche uh, is yeah, the third central figure. That's probably the big one, actually, yes. since, he, since we'll be doing him right after Hegel. Um, but there's this kind of this idea, this acknowledgement that you cannot, logic can't see itself. Like exactly. logically, logic cannot explain logic without becoming uh, teleological, without you know becoming circular logic. Yeah. And sort of through this discovery, especially through Nietzsche, um, you get a, you, a sort of, it fosters a distrust in enlightenment thought, in logic generally, in rationalism generally. Um, but, it, but it does really inhabit Hegel's sort of paradoxes because they're doing this work through logic and rationalism. 
it's not totally abandoned, but they're basically using logic to critique itself in some ways. Absolutely. And I think comparing Brassier to Brandom is useful at this point because for Brandom, this shift to the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is a term that was uh, uh, coined by Paul Ricoeur, mm -hmm. um, a, a famous follower of Husserl and Heidegger and uh, other phenomenologists, right? Um, and, and what he was pointing out was that there were, that there was the shift where philosophy and uh, you could call it psychology as well, psychoanalysis came to a point where it began to critique the forces that affected people, right? Rather mm -hmm. than the kind of internal process of thought, right? And the ways in which the way that people believe that they are going to act results in things that they have no control over, but that form these social forces, be it capital, be it the unconscious, conscious, or in the case of Nietzsche, be it a genealogy of all things, right? right, right. So Brandom sees this as problematic in full, whereas Brassier makes an interesting distinction, right? He sees that both in Kant, in creating uh, a moral philosophy that, was, that included a dynamic of norms and activity, right? And then Hegel in normalizing it or let's not use the normalize it, formalizing it in the dialectic, right, had precipitated this new form of genealogy. And so he splits it into two types of genealogy. On the one hand, you have genealogies like uh, Freud or Marx, who identify an object out in the world. In, in uh, Marx's case, it's labor. Um, in uh, Freud's case, it is the behavior of human beings acting on a part of their mind that they cannot control or recognize, right? And, and the idea of sexual repression. Sexual repression, of specifically. Course, the core of it. Mm -hmm. These forces acting out in the world and creating a, uh, a, a change, right? And, and that change is then critiqued and meant to be understood. That's one type of genealogy. And then on the other hand, there's Nietzsche's type of genealogy, which says, question every single proposition of truth, right? And so he says, there's a danger in the second form, right? Because at some point, once you start questioning every single thing, you come to an absolute skepticism. And then that absolute skepticism precipitates what he calls the will not to know. Right, right? yeah. And I find that very fascinating. Now, I don't agree with this, his uh, interpretation of Nietzsche. And we'll get into that when we actually talk about Nietzsche. But I will say that even if I don't believe it applies to Nietzsche, what he does identify is something that we see very often in our kind of like day-to-day -day online politics, right? This aspect of even leftism where there's so much paranoia, the interest is, is entirely paranoid and entirely questioning the information that they see, but there is no affirmative attempt to build knowledge, right? There's no attempt to reconstruct what is the real or what is reality. And that ultimately amounts to the will not to know, right? right. Because instead of trying to construct a new leftism from the uh, ashes of the left that was murdered throughout the 
uh, 20th century, they simply point out that it happened, right? And nothing can come of that. Yeah, as uh, Brassier says, uh, once knowing has been equated with judgment and judgment path pathologized as co complicit with the quote wrong state of things, then the desire for revolution becomes fatally complicit with the desire not to know as the condition of emancipation. And obviously there's a fear here, right? That, well, does the desire not to know, is that, is that truly um, barbarism, right? Like, is that actually a return to, to what so much of modern thought was fighting against? This sort of like pre-enlightenment uh, mental state? Um, I don't know. Um, I, well, you know, I, f I find it fascinating because in, we can identify it with a lot of different movements. Like you see it in a lot of the new age um, mysticism like there, there's actually a duality, a dialectic in it, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. in some ways it is like the discovery of these like ancient traditions or um, different forms of thought that can be applied to transform the way you think about the world. And in that way, it is a will to know, right? But then there are other forms that are cultish and ritualistic and that deny like basic reality, basic like factual realities that attempt to go off into the jungle to live in a little you know society and uh, forsake the world for all of its sins right and on that side that is an active will not to know in a very yeah. very true and tangible way well you know that is you know it's the danger of identity right i mean uh, i know we were we're kind of talking about the left but you can see it very clearly in the right where yes you know, the, a lot of sort of, yeah, I mean, but like a lot of MAGA, I mean, crazy people, um, you know, their identity has been built around these uh, fundamental principles that are, you know, coming into question in every um, sort of way you approach it in society right now, that the defense is to just shut down. You know, and, yes. you know, and of course, the left for years, we've been trying to logically you know, appeal to their rationality um, when, of course, it's the wrong approach whatsoever because they're not approaching it with any rationality. You know, it's it is a total defensive shutdown and this this will to not know. Um, and 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 in response to that, I would argue, and this will be my last comment on this specific note. Yeah, is that the left in its not being able to conform to this reality and alter itself is also the will not to know is really exactly trying, trying to identify, yeah. you know, and this, the, the, the hermeneutics or the like interpretation of suspicion, you know, is as clear as day in the left, whether it's the, you know, sort of final days of the Soviet bloc and the kind of um, self-policing that they were able to sort of uh, volunteer out of their citizens, you know, and we're seeing a lot of kind of the same echoes in the left today where, um, you know, people are more concerned about saying or being the wrong thing mm -hmm. that they will say nothing at all. Um, yeah. and, and, and in this regard, you, you, you can see Zizek's big other, right? Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. what he says about this Hegelian alienation that is part of the structure of the human mind is that 
it is the big other and and in the big other he's, he's borrowing a phrase from Lacan which you can take to mean that sense in the mind that there is the state it's not simply that there are institutions and people that act as the state but there is a concept within our mind that embodies all of those things and more right that occupies a part of thought and and influences us to do this or to do that you know right yeah i mean um, like the perfect example like aldous huxley's big brother in 1984 right it's not my state it's the state you know it is it's almost an undefined category and yeah, that, like that, we're not, none of us are going to pull out a gun and run up to a uh supreme court justice named Samuel Alito and <laughs> shoot him in the face, right? None of us will e ever do that. Right, right, right. Because there's a big other there. Because we were like, oh shit, like uh, the state's gonna come down on me and I'm going to go to jail forever, right? And that's before we act, right? The, the police may have no idea that we're planning to shoot Justice Alito in the face. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> we are sorry, not sorry you we do. are not google we are we're not, not we're not doing this we're not doing it amazon we're not doing it all the big brothers maybe in our mind but and, you know. yes um, this is just a demonstrative point nonetheless yeah but yes exactly we see amazon listening to us even if they're not there we imagine uh the alexa like turning on as soon as we said as soon as i said shoot <laughs> Justice Alito, <laughs> if it is or not. Yeah, I can hear Alexa right now. I am calling the FBI. <laughs> Fuck, dude. God Alexa, no. don't snitch on me, bro. <laughs> Come on. Um, exactly. But but I think it's funny because Brassier, uh, so he brings up this in his essay, he brings up this sort of piece by Frederick Jameson where Jameson is kind of describing this split uh, from from what he calls philosophy to what he calls theory and is sort of making this um, point that um, especially once Nietzsche comes on the scene, the sort of task uh, or vocation of, of these thinkers is kind of the undermining of philosophy by unraveling affirmative statements of all kinds of like, you know, it's like almost like a dialectical extreme, you know, yes. like finding the falseness in every true statement. Um, and for Jameson, what that does, the positive of that is that we're freed from this kind of, you know, almost Aristotelian sort of philosophy, this ancient Greek whole system philosophy that there's some key, uh, you know, er truth that yes. will unlock everything. Um, that which, there's this ritual object that we finally that we, we that we constantly see filling various gaps in very in various lives and institutions. You can find it by any name, by God, by the other, by immigrants, by you mm -hmm, know, like mm -hmm. people have them all over the place, and there's so many that you can't even list them all, right? But they that this can be this can be escaped by diving into the dialectic right by diving into the tr a true theoretical position where you will never ex accept 
a stabilized system of truth, right? Right. And, you know, I mean, if you hearken back to, we, you know, we did those like episodes on dialectics proper as sort of like a primer before we fully hopped into Hegel. Um, but this is where you see that notion expressed that, and I think in some ways what Jameson is trying to get at actually is that the, the dialectics as a process can never be a system because yes. in it, and, and this is what Zizek would argue, is that as soon as you change your perspective to sort of uh, reunify or to uh, realize a, a certain paradox. Reconcile. It. Reconcile, thank you. Um, you've not just fundamentally changed your perception or your uh, uh the, the appearances that you the way you understand them but you've actually changed the real itself and uh, which is just a kind of a long-winded way of saying that you know the work is never done because yeah. as soon as we find ourselves on the other side of a problem uh we only know we're there because we're presented with a new problem a new contradiction a new paradox um and that you know, that uh, I think Hegel would say that the that real objects, you know, in, in Hegel's language, right, the real, the absolute never fits their notion, that they're always at odds with one another. And once we uh, change the under our understanding of an object to fit its notion, we realize that the, our notion of the object has also changed as well. Yes. And, and so by changing our what our understanding understanding of that appearance is, uh, it still never matches the notion because in internalizing that paradox, we've actually changed, you know, the the notion or uh, and this is sort of a false um, comparison, but it, like a form in Plato's idea, we've changed that that is that's now different. Um, um, and and ultimately, like. You, you see that consistently, whether it's Brandom, whether it's Jameson, whether it's Brassier, whether it's Zizek, that there is that element that is consistent, right? That what is necessary is this dynamics and reciprocity between like norms and activity, right? Mm -hmm. Between mm -hmm. um, the affirmative and the negative side of the dialect dialectic, right? And that, that centers all of them. But in the case of like Zizek or J Jameson in many ways, right? In comparison to someone like Brassier, um, for them, the important layer comes in that aspect of determinate negation, that third, that third level of negation in the Hegelian dialectic. Right. The third step where um, there, it ultimately is never fully reconciled because it always begins again anew in a new dialectic. And ultimately that leads to a sort of negative resolution of knowledge and as a philosophical proposition or as a theoretical proposition in the case of Jameson's argument, it is something that is empty in itself, right? It's ultimately formal. Whereas for Brassier who is influenced by both dialectics and the kind of affirmative uh, 
analysis of difference like in Deleuze, right? Mm -hmm. In the end, his production is a problem, right? It isn't a negativity. It is an affirmation. Mm. The will not to know is a thing, right? Mm. And so you see two different manners in which the dialectic resolves itself. Brandom can be brought into this as well. He comes up with a new idea of creating a non-alienated system of norms, right? And so we have to think about how we use dialectics if we are to use them as a tool for analysis, right? They can be critical and end extremely critical, break down the thing and end in nothing. Or on the other hand, you can break through specific arguments and you can pull out something that is problematic that is loose, that is like not already fulfilled or not already solved, but that is useful for our understanding of the world. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is really where this idea of the hermeneutics of suspicion really lies in both of these works too, because um, I, I think there's this idea of trust that, um, I think for both Brassier and Zizek, they sort of are critiquing in Brandom where, um, you know, Brassier says something to the extent that for Brandom, um, you know, when he characterizes someone as believing that with that statement assumes that there is a belief that they are doing this believing in. And I think both Brassier and Zizek sort of fall into this uh, uh, separate path where, you know, in the old platonic sense, to have a dialectic meant sort of two or more people uh, having a discussion, not to be right, of course, but but to maybe f- become closer to the truth. Yeah. And, you know, especially for Zizek, I think he's really concerned about Brandom's goal you know and and i think for zizek and 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 i i would probably agree with him too that true dialectics is sort of blind in that way because um you know having a goal leads to this uh retroactive justification or change you know because in seeking a goal through its execution you inevitably change what the goal was to match sort of the progress you're making and that in kind of true, true dialectical fashion, um, you know, the, the, the critique, the theory rather than the, the philosophy is, is, well, that, okay, we can't find truth. So it, it's not a, how do we land upon the utopic, but yes. rather how do we, um, you know, move this notion forward to use a Hegelian exactly. term, right? Yeah. Like, how, how, how do we how do we transform culture while understanding that culture that our attempts to change culture will fail and that our attempts to predict culture will not always be realized? And so this aspect of Brassier, to conclude my, my thoughts on, on this, is that Brassier kind of cuts a middle space between Brandom and Zizek, right? That mm-hmm. I am very fascinated by and that I find uh, find very compelling because what he what he resolves what his result is rather is not 
a new like larger philosophical structure that's supposed to supplement all ideas about norms and activity and how we can create one where there's more reciprocal uh, reciprocity in law, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, or in general mores. But instead, he just points out a specific line of thought that is produced negatively out of this dialectical process that is useful for our thinking and identifying a problem. Um, and where Zizek identifies something that maybe we need to do, think better, think more, find some reconciliation between our the alienation that is within us and our alienated culture with the emptiness that's inside of us, right. the person we're trying to make, right? Like, it's very powerful, but it's less tactile. And I like the tactility that there is in Brassier's proposition. Yeah, I mean, um, so I'll just throw this uh, Brassier quote at you. I really like it because I feel like it's, it very plainly sort of says dialectics. And this is towards the end of his, um, of, of his essay. And he says, we are rationally compelled to recognize that the history that subjects us is also the history that sets us free as subjects, but free only to recognize what must be born in order to set us free. I think that's, I think it's perfect. Yeah, it's like such a concise, like, dialectics. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and not simply dialectics, but like, having an idea of change without it being blind optimism, mm -hmm. you know, which is always a danger in progressivism and leftism in socialism, right? In the very, the, the utopian simulacrum of what Marx was talking about, right? In just taking the proletariat, taking over the reins of power, and then in that, you know, auto defaulting to a utopian government that's past history, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is not what was actually in the text. And we need to be reminded of that because we leave ourselves um, not thinking enough. And this is what connects Zizek and uh, Ambrassier is that ultimately their demand is that we we think hard right yeah that, that we care about thought and that and, and that through that thought there's actually a strange optimism sort of like you were mentioning because there's always a path or uh an idea born of the the, the conditions that will set us free you know and, and and inevitably we i think tend to to view that freedom as bondage when we acquire it, but, but that there's always a next step, you know, that there's always something for the next generation to accomplish, um, which is a fascinating wrinkle to, to yeah. it all, you know, the, the question just becomes, do you say it out loud or not, which is really the only difference in the larger philosophical projects of Brassier and Zizek, as I see them, mm. is do you say that part out loud, where Zizek finds it more effective to not, right? To hold that, the darkness of our alienation up to our face. I think uh, Brassier tends more to try to see if there is a proposition that the will not, not to think, the will not to know, right? As being something that can positively affect thought in general. Yeah, dude, Zizek sometimes reminds me of like that sports fan who like 
will refuse to say that we're going to win because as soon as that's uttered, they will lose. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, um, and I, maybe it's a funny comparison because it's such superstition. Um, yes. And, and Brassier does give us a very nice, um, you know, uh, sort of calm collectedness to that approach, you know? Absolutely. So. So, um, I think the next time that we are going to be getting together, we are going to have our last episode on Hegel, right? Yeah. Um, we're going to get into really what he means by the absolute and some of his, um, wider dialectical ideas on culture and how institutions are formed. And, um, and then that will allow us to get into probably the poster boy of suspicion. One of the people who influenced me to read any of this at all, Nietzsche. So, uh, that's otherwise known as the man with the coolest mustache. Yeah. <laughs> the, the man who uh, got kicked by a horse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, uh, thank you guys. Thank you everybody for tuning in. Uh, we are text the matter. Uh, I'm Egon. I'm Misha. And uh, you can find us all over the web. Uh, our YouTube channel is a new brand. Uh, we've got Facebook and Instagram. You can go over to Patreon at Text of the Matter and give us money because um, that's yeah, cool. We got, some, we got some goodies that we're going to be coming out for you as well. Yes, that's true. They are not here yet, but uh, we, we've, we've got some stickers in production. So um, definitely keep your eye on the Patreon page, uh, because when you do join, and even if you are already joined, because we do have some supporters already, uh, we got some fun stickers for you and, uh, you know, other goofy stuff in the works. So, but bam. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we love you, Hagel. We love you too, Hagel. <laughs> All right. Good night, guys. Good night.